0: Hello? Can you hear me?
1: Welcome to Charlotte Dunes Lagoon, where we um, talk about whatever we want.
0: <laughs> like I love, I, feel, I love swimming in the lagoon. I feel like the creature from the lagoon, so thank you.
1: Yay! And um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, because I'm sure you can describe your bio better than I can, but I'll just say that you're the author of Thirst, Nicholas Powers, this is an amazing book, um, incredible writing, crazy story, and stunning illustrations. I was very impressed.
0: Thank you, yes. Uh, So to the art audience, uh, yes, uh, my name is Nick Powers. I'm a professional daydreamer. Uh, That's my side gig. Uh, The way that I keep the lights on and food on the table, and to make sure that Child Protective Services don't take my kid away from starving, is I'm a professor of literature at a state university, uh Old Westbury, and, which is in Long Island. I live in Brooklyn. I take the train out to, to Long Island and I teach. And the teaching is going very well. I've been doing it for about uh, 16, 17 years. And oh, so I think yeah. I've, I've got it down to a well-oiled machine. But, you know, the students always change. And so the way that you teach changes. And uh, this semester, we're doing Caribbean literature. So we just got doing um, Columbus. Uh, We're doing uh, the literature of the plague this semester. So we just finished Daniel Defoe's uh, Journal of the Plague in London during 1665. Now we're doing Albert Camus' La Peste, uh, uh, which in English is the Plague. And in my other class, we're getting ready to write their senior thesis, which is a 25-page critical essay. So that's my uh, professor gig. On the side, I do actually talk and uh, advocate for psychedelic therapy. So I give a lot of talks and some of them are paid and some of them are not. It's more of a passion project. And um, the goal with that is hopefully to get the Department of Mental Health in New York City and hopefully the surrounding tri-state areas to follow like a domino effect. Uh, offering mental health, pe- uh, mental health uh, psychedelic therapy as advanced mental health technique to working class people uh, and uh, poor people who really need it, uh, because oftentimes intergenerational trauma, um, just life in the streets, and I think they really uh, could benefit from this new high tech, uh, you know, medical technology. So there's that. And then last, uh, I'm a, I'm a father and, uh, I would say probably the most powerful psychedelic I've ever taken is, is my son. You know, I love, I love him. Mm. Uh, he brings me, you know, incredible amounts of joy and grief all at the same time, sometimes within the space of one minute. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's life in BK.
1: How old is your son? He's four. Oh wow. That is a joy and terror all at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. I have a 15 year old so I'm a little ahead of you. <laughs> How,
0: so what happens at 15? Do they get easier? Do they get harder? Like I know they can drive and they can talk kind of like what
1: Yeah, you know, my daughter has Asperger, well, what they used to call Aspergers or high functioning autism. Okay. So it's a very different experience I think for me. <laughs> and uh but it's a beautiful time. It's all the times are beautiful. You know, I right. like that her and I can have intellectual conversations. We watched Romeo and Juliet, the Boz Lerman version the other night, and her takes on it were so hilarious because they're reading Romeo and Juliet in school, and she was like, this is giving, call the police, this is giving under, like, date rape, this is like, <laughs> I love this. I was like, I did not know these words when I was your age. And I'm so glad that this generation exists. I have a lot of hope in the, I have a lot of hope in Gen Z. Like people will knock on them, but I'm like, these guys are smart. Yeah. Yes. They're addicted to their phones. Aren't we all?
0: All at this point. Yeah.
1: You must have, I mean, I wasn't planning on getting right into this, but you must have really interesting you must have a really interesting perspective teaching young people and like seeing firsthand how technology is changing everything. And, um, yeah, what are, and especially reading about the plague and, and that must feel really timely.
0: It, I taught the literature of the plague in, I think, 2021. And, you know, that was like, you know, kind of like at the climax and we were starting to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel with the, I think the vaccines that were starting to roll out and that it becomes a form of book therapy because the Ooh. plot reflects or, you know, parallels their real life. And so the emotions that the characters feel are emotions that the reader has felt. And so by expressing what the character is feeling, that the reader can then ride along, and some of their anxieties can get expressed out through the characters, and so some of their uh the deaths that they've had to witness and endure um the like near life you know fatalities the the paranoia about the quarantine, the insecurity about the future that kind of just went up in smoke all of these emotions are reflected in the text, and so the book, in a sense. Allows them to express themselves through reading the book, and so they actually uh, massage stuck emotions out mm. through their consciousness via the book, and so it becomes a, a kind of an odd form of uh, psychodynamic therapy where emotions that are stuck can start flowing again, and so I found that that is for me it's not surprising because I've seen it before in other courses, but for the students they're surprised because they they, they Remember what literature and what art can do as a form of kind of therapeutic expression, so um, that 's what i 've been seeing with the literature of the plague and I think overall i've seen i 've seen the students become dramatically less homophobic and less sexist and less racist since I started in two thousand and six or seven wow and uh, i 've seen also that their attention span has actually decreased. Mm. And that they're more knowledgeable, but they have, they're more arrogant about knowing a lot of things, but they're also a little bit naive in being able to judge the quality of the knowledge. And so the internet is a great relativizer. Like you can just see anything there and it all just becomes a soup. And without a kind of hierarchical sense of, pedigree or quality or at least gatekeeping the danger of that is that everything can just kind of collide together and the students sometimes have a hard time knowing what's a good argument what's not a good argument and then finally i i realized that there are such visual thinkers that there's a difference in when you think primarily in visual it can be very kind of mushy-headed but when you're reading thinking about reading just kind of tightens up the, the brain a bit you know um and then the last thing I, I I've noticed is that just as a generation, the kind of generational personality, they're a lot more anxious, and I think because they're they're exposed to the judgment of their peers <clears throat> through social media in a dramatic way that those of us who are Gen X and older just weren't, and I, I and I feel the difference between say Gen X, which you know we grew up without, we're addicted now, but our yeah. deep kind of brain settings were without media so if I don't have my phone I actually feel fine I feel great Mm -hmm. I feel like when they don't have their phone they feel anxious Mm -hmm. and I realize that there's for for us and people who are older there's like a feral quality to us like we just like being out in the moment like wild animals and just figuring it out you know and if we bite someone or get bitten that's kind of like part of the price of being like a feral wolf and for them, they're not feral at all. They're very domesticated. They like to stay inside. <laughs> you know, they like to they like to know house who. They can, yeah, and I'm just like they're house cats, and and so you know it's weird because they hear these 40 year old parents like you know screaming outside the window. They're like, "What are you guys doing?" <laughs> they're like,
1: "Yeah, I know." My daughter doesn't even want to go get her learner's permit to drive because she's like, "Where would I go? Everything I have is right here inside the computer."
0: Yeah. And I'm like, oh, honey, it's not.
1: (laughs) You can try to, I know, and you try to fight it as a parent, but it's very challenging. Um, I know both you and I have, and I'm really jumping around here, but both you and I, I think, have spent time in countries that were less developed. Yeah. And she, she grew up in the very beginning of her childhood. We were living in Cameroon. And so... I felt like, I'm I'm glad that she at least had that little bubble of nature and that little bubble of experiencing the world without all of this before she got thrown back into, well, first we moved to Canada and then America, but before she got thrown back into the mix. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that she has at least a little bit of that perspective still, but, and I try to, I want to take her back because I think it's important to see The world, especially when you're a teenager. But I resonate with every single thing that you're saying. And I just read Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. I don't know if you've read it, but I thought I had exhausted that topic. And there were things that I had not exhausted in that topic of the stolen focus distraction. So, and I imagine with like Chat GPT, it becomes even harder for you as a teacher and these, the AI.
0: Yeah, the AI. I mean, I'm lucky that I'm in a kind of a sweet spot because my students um, know that they need sharpening of their skills, their writing skills. And so I tell them very upfront that if you use AI, you know, however you can to write your essay, you're robbing yourself because at some Mm -hmm. point you're going to get caught. There's no way that you're going to go through this life not knowing how to write or read critically and then not get busted at some point someone's gonna look at something that you need to write ASAP and know and you're gonna look empty handed and so they generally want to learn how to read better and write better because they know that they're not going to be able to like AI their way through through life but then I think once they actually start doing it, writing creatively thinking reading critically, they actually enjoy it because then the world opens up and they're like, oh, I didn't know th- oh there's all these Signs. And it's like that scene in the Matrix, everything's like green, letters coming down. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I love what you said also about how the narrative can kind of unlock trauma and release trauma or unlock memories and release memories. One of the reasons that I wanted to speak with you was I heard you, on a, I watched you on a talk, I believe, with the Naropa Institute. And you were talking about how you had you know, witnessed a lot of things that no human being should ever witness. Like nine eleven mm-hmm. aftermath, Hurricane Katrina, um, Darfur, Haiti, I, I believe, after the earthquake. Yeah. And how, like, psychedelics helped you unlock that trauma. I wonder if you could speak more about that, because I so deeply resonated that with that. That is what psychedelics also did for me. Mm-hmm. Um just helped me process all of the things that I had seen. <laughs> yeah. That, and books and writing, I think also do that so well.
0: Yeah. I, I, my first use of psychedelics was in a college dorm room and it was more hedonistic and mm-hmm. it was artsy and hedonistic. You know, there were Theater majors who were doing kind of body, kind of scatological versions of Broadway tunes, you know, the stuff that we, we all, you know, fun stuff. Uh Film majors who were like taking lights from the storage room and casting blue and reds and stuff. And so, you know, that's a great place to do LSD or MDMA or going to a rave and uns, 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 uns. And everyone says. Just... So my first experience of of psychedelics was the kind of classic 1960s narrative or role play which is mind expansion and a- aesthetic uh, aesthetic play but when I moved uh, I was born in New York when I when I moved back to New York as an adult my family had been here I'd always traveled here It always came here so New York was always like inside of me and when I and wait, came where did I, you
1: say you were in between
0: oh I, I left uh went to Pennsylvania for um Middle school and high school, and then I went to Boston Emerson College for, for undergraduate. And then I, for graduate uh, studies, I went to 34th Street, um, uh, the Graduate Center, which is like right across the Empire State Building, right? So you come out and there's like an icon of New York, like just being shoved right down your eyes, you know, you know, and, and everything. You see all the tourists there. And so when I came back in September, August 2001, I was like everyone else in this naive state. I was going out. I was getting my books ready, getting my classes ready. And then September happens. And the, that whole year, all of us were, you know, smelling the ash of people and looking at the rubble. And when I went to Burning Man in 2002, I actually did not like Burning Man at all. The first, oh, that's a,
1: early. That's a very early burner.
0: Very early <laughs> for burner. Most people. I, I was about to leave and then, um, this New Yorker, this guy named Tony, who was like, a, he wasn't even in my camp. He was just a couple of tents down. You know, he said, Hey, how are you doing? And I rec, I could hear New York in his voice. He gave me ecstasy and acid and I took it. And that was the first time I had a therapeutic experience of yeah. psychedelic. And I, and it wasn't a classical Freudian psychodynamic. It wasn't cognitive therapy. There was no, you know, Popper Freud wasn't floating in the desert Although on LFC. I wouldn't have been surprised. It was literally me just walking away from the city, actually getting out of Burning Man, just walking to the deep playa out into the desert and just crying and screaming and just letting, I mean, letting it all out. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, there was this bonfire and people were half naked and running around the fire. Um, and, you know, it looked like uh, Walt Disney's uh, Night at Bald Mountain. <laughs> you know, just everyone was just circling around and and it felt very purifying to be um, screaming it out, dancing it out, sweating it out. And when I came back to New York and I took the, you know, flight back to, uh, JFK and I, I still had dust on me a little bit. My, I had dreadlocks at the time, dust in my hair. My body felt buoyant. I felt loose and I could look at everyone else and they felt very tight. And that was the first experience of psychedelic therapy that psychedelics warped speed like it, like hyperspeed it shot me through my trauma or shot trauma out of me. And I was able to get to a place of equilibrium within a couple of hours that other people would have taken years to get to. And I don't think New Yorkers in general had the peace in their body, the easiness in their body for like five or six years after nine eleven that I had, yeah. you know, literally because of a couple of hours. So I would just say that I knew that, and then eventually getting into psychedelic uh, kind of culture and learning about the history of it as medicine and the history of it with as therapy, it totally made sense Uh because it helps lower your ego. Your ego yeah. just and the trauma that's, that the ego is almost kind of like a, a plug in your a plug, and then once that ego is removed, a lot of that trauma can come out. So, you know, I found it incredibly helpful for me i have the evidence that's in my body and i know that i'm sure other people could benefit who actually needed much more than i do or needed much more than i did uh there's many people out there people dealing with opi- opioid addiction you know sexual physical mental abuse uh, ptsd from war whatever like there's so many people who need it but i think it could get their lives back quicker
1: yeah that i mean that's i really also totally agree <laughs> And I think I love the metaphor. I mean, I'm just thinking about dust as you're speaking, all that dust from the wreckage. You've got a dust theme in your book, Thirst. And I almost think of I you know, dust. I've written I have a relation I have a relationship with dust also. (laughs)
0: What is your relationship with dust?
1: Well, and I think about it as kind of like trauma is almost like dust in your brain. Mm. And the yeah. psychedelics come and vacuum it up so that you're can have just like a clean surface for your brain to function properly oh it's
0: um, beautiful that's beautiful that's a great metaphor
1: yeah it's it's and i I too wish that more people could have access to that kind of therapy and could have i mean some people call it spiritual bypassing, but I'm like, why not bypass? why suffer like if it works, yeah. it works.
0: Yeah.
1: And I also feel like MDMA was my first. Well, you said acid and MDMA. I think MDMA for me was my first therapeutic experience. Mm. Um, my first experience was LSD when I was quite young, too young, and it was kind of a negative experience at that time. But I do feel like, you know, different compounds have different magic. And so many of them address trauma and we're seeing more and more studies coming out to back up this Mm -hmm. anecdotal evidence that we have. Um, I'm wondering if you have a special relationship now currently with any particular, I don't like the term medicine, I don't know what, I'm still working out my language around this. Sometimes I'm like sacrament. Sometimes I'm like medicine. Sometimes I say like spiritual compound, psychedelic. I'm wondering if you have any special relationship with a particular psychedelic now more so than others and also how you're envisioning advocacy around getting this experience available to people who need it
0: because That's
1: i have a, lot. a sorry no
0: because i have a 4 year old i abstain from psychedelics because and i'm the primary you know caretaker i'm i'm in a co-parenting situation okay. and, and he's with me almost all the time like monday through friday the first weekend of the month Aww. so yeah so and i love it he's like you know we're buddies we get on each other's nerves we love each other we get on each other's nerves we love each other <laughs> so Um, but there's not a lot of space in there for like a nine hour, five hour trip or LSD trip. Like you got to stay sharp because, you know, if I'm at the playground with him, I gotta, I gotta be sharper than he is. Cause he's already in a constant kind of psychedelic state. I feel that Mm -hmm. being a toddler, the world is still very fresh and raw to him and it doesn't quite fit into words yet, you know? And so for him, you know, I, I feel that, you know he's already in a psychedelic state so i have to be the kind of like the the guide you know and but uh my mom passed away about a year ago and i was invited to do a ketamine uh trip by a a company a private company called field trip that administers you know ketamine uh doses within a kind of very therapeutic place you know and you can imagine like nice music a, a little glowing crystal in the center of the room really soft like persian mats you know, like nice, you know, African mud prints on the wall, you know, just the whole thing. Hmm. And, and they were very good. And, you know, we had a, a, a circle beforehand, talk about set setting, what's our goal. And when I was injected with, I think it was like 35 milligrams of of ketamine. And it really helped, again, dissolve my, my sense, you know, it's very, you. it's like euphoric, but it's more disassociative. You start floating and you feel like your body's kind of You know, your body's like a sandcastle that just got washed away by a wave, like all the parts of you just flow and trickle away. And as you're floating like a cloud, I could experience the raw grief that had still been locked up inside of me like frozen butter, you know, like just frozen clumps of lard still inside of me. And eventually they they too began to warm up and loosen and then trickle away. So then when I began to kind of reassemble when the trip was on its way down... And I, I felt solid in myself again, tingly, but solid, sparkly, but real. Then the, the, I could feel my body had been washed out, you know, cleaned out that some of that grief that had been stuck inside, like, you know, old mothballs had been finally like flushed out. And, and it, and it, I think again, it helped speed me through the stages of grief, not too fast so that I skipped over necessary, um, emotions but also to help me not get stuck in them. And that's important for those of us living in a modern America, the modern West is because we work so much, wake up, grab, you know, our Dunkin' Donuts, our coffee, go out to work, work, have lunch, maybe sneak a couple of moments on social media, maybe have a phone call, but mostly working, then come back. And then you got to pick up your kids, make dinner, you know, help them with their homework and, and all of that everyday cycle, there's very little time for you to be you, for you to feel what you're feeling. And so I think our modern life work schedule m- makes it, um it gets us stuck in stages of emotional kind of, emotional stages. We get stuck in them because we don't have the time to really let them flow because we're always servicing our kids or servicing our boss or servicing others. So I found that that was helpful for me. And, but, you know, I mean, aside from like, you know, if my, when my kid is at uh, his mom's, you know, maybe there's a, an edible I'll do and go to the, uh, you know, a hot spa or something and just relax and enjoy. Um, but I think, you know, when he gets older and he's more competent, then I think maybe I can uh, re experiment again.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess I was also wondering, when I wanted to ask you, you know, it takes a certain amount of bravery, I think, especially, I don't know if you identify as a Black man, um, but I think it takes a certain kind of bravery as a parent, especially a single parent, a Black man, to even talk openly about psychedelics. So I'm, I think things are changing now slowly, but I wonder if you felt like that tension, or if you felt like, no, I need to speak out about this, like even if it's at any personal risk to myself,
0: yeah, no, it's great I mean some I mean my background is is New yorkian and kind of like in terms of like culture, black new yorkian and and honestly, like you know, if anyone knows New York, you know the cultures mix here all the time, so the idea of 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 a <laughs> black New Eucan is kind of as it's as common as a slice of pizza um but I, I again, there's not a lot of risk for me, particularly because you know, I'm not detailing any particular illegal drug use. Like the ketamine is mm-hmm. the trip that I use is legal. Um, uh, an edible that I may take like once every two months that's legal now. There's even cannabis stores that are open, literally, you know, down the street. There's cannabis stores. I actually generally don't drink and I don't use cannabis because as a teacher, I have to be yeah. uh, mentally sharp and and there. So if I'm high. I wouldn't be able to be um able to listen to my students, I think for me as well as I'd like to, so um there's nothing that I'm you know saying in any of the the commentaries that I give that would put me or my ability to parent you know in legal peril, but I think admitting to past or not admitting like you know in reveling exploring yeah. about past psychedelic use um There's no legal danger, but more than that, I I think there's a danger in not being honest about our real life experiences Mm -hmm. and our desires and our thoughts, because then we have a relationship to our language as a constant act of censorship. And we're relating to our ability, uh, to our self-expression as... Um, constantly being muzzled because the person on the other side is a person of surveillance or a punitive person a cop mm-hmm. a very kind of conservative thinking family member and I think that creates the danger that we lose touch with ourselves or we wind up having a double life yeah. And it, eventually the double life, the, the the kind of hidden life grows in such great size that it begins to capsize us.
1: Mm, relatable also. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, it, and because that double life, that secret life is really what we enjoy. It's really who we are. And then this kind of pantomime of conservatism, this kind of theater mask that we wear for others, it winds up becoming so far away that, you know, we barely check up on it. It gets dusty, it gets dirty, you know, it's weird. And our real life is this other life. And and I think that that's a state of imbalance. And then finally, I I think I would say, I don't, I do not feel, I do not think that those in authority who are asking us to lie about our truth deserve that much respect.
1: Yeah, I concur.
0: Like they don't deserve our lies. You know, and um, they may have some measure of power, but oftentimes even that's illusionary. So I just don't think that those who built their power on an illusion deserve the effort of our lying. Like, I think, you know, in fact, in some ways, it's almost like you should save your lives for the people you really love.
1: I I was just thinking about, you know, when I asked that question, I'm kind of also thinking about Dr. Carl Hart, which I know he's like a controversial figure to some, but I really admire him and <clears throat> his idea of like, everybody that's doing this should talk about it because there's nothing wrong with doing it. And, you know, some people would really face hardship if they were open about whatever they're doing. And that is, you know, because of systemic discrimination or, you know, it varies by region. I'm sure somebody might feel more discomfort in certain parts of the country than in yeah, New York. Yeah,
0: absolutely right. Yeah. And like
1: certain levels of privilege and, you know, there's certain risk involved. But so that's kind of the attitude I adopt too. I'm just like civil disobedience has a place.
0: <laughs> it, really, it really does. It, it really does. And, you know, I think that there's there's a level of like of political storytelling or mythic storytelling. And then there's like reality and like and sometimes reality, you can only glimpse it sometimes. In, and I'm not a very big math person, but just through the numbers, I remember interviewing uh, Dr. Hart and and also reading some of his uh, research. And he's done a lot of original research, but he's also synthesized other people's research, which is what, you know, um, researchers should do. And 70% of people who do some kind of either narcotic or psychedelic are actually fine. Yeah like like the image of the image of the drug user that we have is actually a small i mean it's not tiny but it's a it's a minority of those who use drugs most people who use drugs are like doctor hart like they go to work play with their kids help their kids with their homework you know and so um, this paranoia that you know if you take a drug that you're going to turn into remember in the simpsons there was that one guy the alcoholic at the at the bar uh, he, mm-hmm. he there was this episode where he's like this young preppy guy and he's like clean shaven and his hairs are you know he's a Rhodes scholar and he took one drink and all of a sudden he just like molded into this alcoholic. <laughs> I feel like that's the image that they have of the conservatives have of drugs it's like you know you do drug once and all of a sudden you're this like crackhead scratching on the corner
1: yeah where do you think that comes from like what do you think that's about this Matt The I mean it's
0: yeah, I think part of it is a sense of social control, like, you know, controlling, um, controlling those who are lower in class, controlling those who are of different ethnicity, controlling, you know, using as an excuse to, uh, you know, keep whole neighborhoods in their uh, kind of a lockdown in, the, in their place. I think, so that's a social explanation. Uh, I think um, the character trait that I've seen in those who have a kind of an erotic investment in being a kind of puritanical authority is that it's a way of controlling themselves. Like they themselves have, have, are afraid of who they would be if they just let go a little bit. And so they're, you know, they're very wound up type A type people. And so, and then the other group are people who've been hurt in some way by drug abuse or drug addiction maybe not their own but by someone else and so because of that experience they can only see drugs as leading to the destruction of a of a life so I think that those are the kind of the three reasons I've seen like there's a social reason you know political control and you know personal character types but then also like woundedness and I've noticed this when Carl Hart has been interviewed Dr. Hart has been interviewed by I would say, uh, people in the Black media elite, you know. Um, and oftentimes these are Gen Xers like us, right? Mm-hmm. And he has, they they have really gotten on him. And even though he, he offers the research in a really reasoned way, you know, he doesn't raise his voice or anything. He's just trying to explain, these are what the numbers say. And they come at him with a lot of drug war propaganda because they were deeply, deeply scarred by the crack era.
1: And we were all programmed by the war on drugs as kids, like D.A.R.E. And
0: remember that skillet, the agent, this is your brain on drugs. Oh, oh my, my God. Da- <laughs> <laughs> yes, <that's> exactly it. <laughs> my daughter actually painted
1: that. But, um, yeah, I this is serious. Uh-huh. Your... <laughs> yeah, I think we were all programmed by that rhetoric. And it took a fair amount of unprogramming, and they didn't program us at all about the dangers of alcohol, which I always cite as far more dangerous than almost anything else you can, or like many negative health outcomes, like impacts that you can have from it.
0: I think that's part of what people felt was such a hypocrisy. You know, that I mean, how many, you know, how many people got drunk and, and smacked their kids around? you know, uh, got behind the wheel and smeared a family into a a puddle of blood on the highway or, you know, got a little bit too confident at the, you know, roulette wheel or the poker table and came back and they had no house, you know, I'm just saying, like, I just feel that, you know, or two guys who, you know, I've seen this when I was in Oakland, Uh, we were watching an MMA fight in a bar and you can just feel the testosterone just rising. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Yeah. The testosterone was rising so much that like people's beer started boiling in their cups. And, <laughs> and you can imagine exactly what's going to happen, right? So after it, a couple of guys get into it, they go out and they, and there's a, a fight out in the parking lot. Now, thankfully, usually, not always, but sometimes there's a, a couple of guys to act as kind of informal referees like, all right, all right, that's enough, that's enough, you know. But it's, it's like, come on, alcohol has done an incredible amount of damage. And I just don't see that on weed. I just don't see people acting no. like that generally like on or
1: mushrooms or, or mushrooms yeah like
0: no one's me like yeah let's get to an mma fight i can't wait to like kill my family on mushrooms. <laughs> i have never heard that never so
1: yeah what do you see as like the pathway do are you in into the me- like do you think okay let's do the medical model or maybe it should all be decriminalized or everything should just be legalized Like, what is your, what do you see as like the pathway or what would you want? Not what do you see, but what would you prefer the pathway be for the future of psychedelics in America, in the world, I guess?
0: Um, Well, first, I think the medical model is necessary because it changes the narrative frame. It changes the story that we tell about psychedelics. So psychedelics is no longer, oh, you know, my, I remember hearing this when I was doing LSD in college there was a guy who took too many tabs of LSD and he thought that he was a chicken, mm-hmm. or, you know, or like the, someone thought they were a, a glass of orange juice and he's like, don't touch me. I'll spill. Like there's these crazy LSD, you know, stories or someone who's in, um, you know, a mental asylum shaking invisible bugs off of himself. So, you know, I think the medical model has dramatically changed the story around psychedelics to one mostly appealing. And it really helps that a lot of celebrities who generally are in a cocoon of privilege because, you know, they can go to the private islands, they take private jets. And the great truth about class in America is you can commit a lot more crime if it's done in a private space. It's just the way it is. So, you know, a low level, you know, misdemeanor, whatever, like, you know, smoking weed when it was illegal, still illegal in a lot of states, Or doing mushrooms or whatever, if it's done in a private place like celebrities have, it's fine. So then they come out and no one's going to arrest Snoop Dogg or Willie Nelson. Prince Harry. Yeah, no one's going to arrest Prince Harry. Like no one's like, because, you know, cops are cops are cops are people too. And they're like, why the fuck am I going to bother? Like they're not. So there's that. There's that. Um, I think that the next hopeful step is that psychedelics that are already legal like ketamine. Um, which is more of a disassociative, but relatively you know benign and helpful. And you know soon MDMA is going to be online legally for therapy in about a year and a half, 2 years. And then after that probably psilocybin in about 5 or 6 years and then maybe you know moonshot LSD. So what I would love to see is you know a conversation at a construction site where you know it's about the weekend, it's like you know Friday morning, Friday afternoon and the guys are relaxing between their shifts they're having lunch and it's like, oh, what are you gonna do this weekend? It's like, oh, I'm gonna take a trip. We're like, oh, are you going to go to that, to that, you know, that field trip place? You're going to go to, you know, the, the mind expansion lab. And that like once a month, there's usually like a weekend where a lot of the psychedelic healing therapy centers offer a trip. And then also at the same time, those are the private ones. And then adjacent to them, are the Department of Mental Health also offering psychedelic trips. So this kind of becomes known colloquially throughout New York as like trip weekend, right? Maybe it's the third weekend in the month. And, you know, that someone who's a, you know, construction worker is um, just, you know, having a very, very difficult time, um, you know, disciplining his kids because he, you know, he, he really, he's scared because he had been abused as a a physically abused, really hit by his parents. And so he doesn't want to do that, but then his kids are kind of getting a little bit out of control and he just feels very stuck whenever he even tries it. So he goes, he tells the guys, like, yeah, I think I'm going to go on a trip this weekend. Um, He gets ready for that night, you know, wears really comfortable clothes. He goes to the clinic. Uh, They give him some MDMA. There's an integration circle. People are asking like, what's your set and setting. Um, he says, you know, this is my issue. This is what I'm, I'm thinking about. I have a hard time with disciplining kids, my kids, uh, a therapist is there, you know, and he takes the MDMA and, you know, he lies down and, you know, she's asking him questions along the way. And with each question, he feels much more of a transference and he really begins to explore. She's like, you know, um, imagine that you were your kids and you're looking at yourself. Do you think your kids are afraid of you? And then he's like, no. He goes, all right, well, imagine that you're your father looking at you. Are you, a, yeah. And then all of a sudden he begins to put himself in the place of other people. And then he's like, all of this memory, and he's like crying because he, he realizes that, you know, he's he's um, been blocked from dealing authentically with his own kids because he thinks that he is his kids and he thinks more more terrifying that he is his own father. And he has to realize in his mind kind of like an image of his father appears and he goes, you know what? You're not me. And I'm proud of you for not being me. I don't want you to be me. And that's the greatest gift you can give me. Be better than me. And so when the trip starts to end and he comes out of it, you know, he gives the therapist a big hug and then they get back into the integration circle and they all kind of talk about some of the things that they've, you know, went through. And then when he goes back, you know, he's, he takes these kids on a long walk and he tells them a little bit about his family history, and then his kids are, are just surprised that his father that they didn't know that that their father had been hit and beaten by their kids, and they also understand why their father has a hard time disciplining them. And they say, "Dad, you know what? I want to I want to help. I want to be there." We don't think that you're a bad father at all. And they give him a big hug and, and a big mountain. He's kind of crossed over a big mountain, and that's just one of the whole mountain range of internal calcified questions that have turned into stone inside the heart. And people just have to climb over those mountains inside of themselves. And if you do it right, you can get over and people will be there with to help you kind of get on the other other side. They'll pull you over. Okay. And I think he'll return to work on Monday and you know the trip will be over. He'll be fine. He'll be able to handle heavy equipment. The guys will and, and what happens is there's a couple of other people who went on on different trips because it's you know trip weekend. And so the conversation all throughout the city, from construction sites to bars to kitchens, to um supermarkets, to stock room, to you know, people working at a corporate office, like everyone is just talking more openly with more nuanced about the inner life. But not in a kind of new age mush-mushy way, but like in a very like this is this is what I dealt with. And I think what it does is it, is it rehumanizes and expands our circle of empathy for other people. Because one, we know we're not alone, and we can look at other people and say, "Oh, they have this internal obstacle course that they've been going through." Now I can understand them a little bit better. And and I think what it does is it kind of changes the tone of a city. It, it, it dramatically shifts it. And and then so psychedelics isn't seen as something that you know, just like the bohemian avant-garde does, you know. That uh, it's something that's just woven into the culture, not only of a city, but also of a rural town of the United States, you know, everywhere from, you know, Brooklyn to Appalachia to Skid Row to, you know, you know, Alaska, you know, it's just, it's just part of the culture now. And I think that at that point, um, it opens up space for other changes in our culture, like maybe we realize like we really don't need to have poverty. We actually have enough, there's more than enough land here. Maybe we realize, maybe men realize patriarchy is our enemy too. And not not just for like a dime store feminist thing, but like literally like patriarchy is one of the belief systems that makes us file towards war.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: war winds up hurting, obviously killing men, but really hurting women and children the most. And and maybe in a era of nuclear weapons, maybe the the... Maybe maybe male culture can realize we need to actually find a different way of settling things other than war, because, you know, maybe when we had crossbows and swords, it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, we're not there anymore now, you know, like we've gone we've gone beyond that and we got to pull back, Um, you know, maybe we'll start looking at the material, the hyper materialism of our lives and all this stores filled with all this plastic and, you know, this mm, contract yeah. that you buy more and more and more to keep up. And so it just like it maybe would have like a nice ripple effect and people like, do I really need this stuff? And and I, I would like to think that that begins this kind of incremental, but eventually tipping point where the culture begins to shift. You know, so that that would be the for me, like the kind of. You know, the the ultimate vision of it.
1: That's such a beautiful utopian vision. And it sounds so rational and so logical. I'm like, why can't we have it right now? I get, I get frustrated by the bureaucratic process of the government, having worked for the government myself in the past. I'm just like, why can't we make this happen yeah, faster it makes so much sense but I, I found it interesting that you said you actually I love the idea of the field not field trip day but trip day trip weekend yeah, yeah. lovely I would love to see because you know I grew up in rural Appalachia myself and oh, okay. <laughs> I would love to see like little regional community gathering centers in yeah. my hometown yeah. but instead there's like police everywhere and they're probably all doing some kind of drugs, but if you were to, like, if I, I I have often dreamed of having little, like, gatherings ceremonies in my hometown, but I fear Mm -hmm. the police so much there. Like, I just think that I will get arrested. So that's, (laughs) we're not there yet. I hope we will be there one day, but um, I love, I found it interesting that you said the Department of Health. So you actually envisioned the, Government yeah. being like very involved in this, I guess, to make it more accessible.
0: I think mostly because, unfortunately, you know, once the venture capitalists got their hands on to the kind of psychedelic renaissance, that, you know, something that literally, you know, taba acid went what, 15, 20 bucks or MDMA, 34? I don't know. I haven't bought them in a while. So, but they're not that expensive. But if you do a psychedelic treatment, it can go into the thousands upon thousands yeah. of dollars.
1: Therapist, facility, rents
0: everything yeah you know and and instantly that makes it out of reach I I mean not just for the poor which is a a banal thing to say I would say even the upper working class can't reach it and the lower middle class and even middle class people have just other things to to pay for aren't going to think that that's like an expense item so I for me One of the reasons I'm actually actively kind of reaching out and trying to get the ball rolling here about the Department of Mental Health in New York City trying to offer ketamine services um, to you know the thousands upon thousands of patients that that go to the mental health clinics here is to make it to one to signal to the police and other security the security parts of the state so you know the police everything from someone who's looking at the traffic ticket to like. The anti-drug and anti-gang units like the scorpion units that were i think in memphis that killed tyree nichols um to you know the fbi headquarters here to you know to kind of signal to the state security forces hey chill out like this is don't like focus on assaults and rapes and Mm robbery maybe white collar crime like focus on stuff that really matters but you know Ketamine and psychedelics, like we're we're kind of taking that off your plate. And so that's important. And then the other thing is to start making it acceptable, um, not just the chemical, but the culture of therapeutic inner journeying and coming out on the other side, more integrated and more healed. And to have that plot line, that kind of movement, Mm -hmm. that cultural ceremony be something that is widespread because it shouldn't just be part of like some bohemian elite it should be something that even the workers recognizes something that that's helpful for them and then if you have like that all the way up and down society um then it, it it then allows for the people to refine it in the ways it meets their needs they can start to tweak and experiment with it and push at its edges and say like oh okay this part of the ceremony works that doesn't Let's find something that works for this neighborhood, this block, this town, you know. So that's, I think, why it's important to have the government involved, you know, um, because then it shifts the resources away from prosecuting,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, drug use and really changes the culture of policing to be like, we find if we're going to have police, let them do something that's actually helpful.
1: Yeah, I saw actually in Ontario, they were having police officers Go to do ayahuasca ceremonies, I think,
0: and I, I was I, like, I "Wow,
1: good, yeah. for <laughs>
0: yeah. good for Toronto!" Yes, good for that. They need it. That's what I'm saying. It's like trip weekend. It's not just a construction worker; it's the police officer. You know, whether she mm-hmm. or he needs to like, because they're dealing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of messed up people, and they're going to see a lot of horrific things. Yeah, and it's not to play the small world, small violin for police, but that's the reality. They're they are vicariously traumatized by what they see and deal with. that. Would, but if it's good enough for them, if it's good enough for the soldier coming back from Iraq, if it's good enough for the police, if it's good enough for childhood victims of different kinds of abuse, then it's just good for everyone. Like mm-hmm. just, you know.
1: Everyone without like serious mental health issues that would need something more serious something but that's else, implicit yeah. in what we're saying yeah what do you think is the role of the storyteller in making that happen what story does the storyteller need to I,
0: I think there's two sides of it so I would say the the back end is the story about psychedelics itself so that's changing so what you know maps um and other like john hopkins and other major kind of research and uh, policy organizations have done is that, and then the celebrities coming out and the kind of the culture, it has already changed the story around psychedelics. So that's Michael
1: Pollan.
0: Michael Pollan. Um, So that's, that's on the, that, that end. And then I would say on the next end is that it changes the story that we tell about ourselves and that people uh, have the ability to narrate and using whatever images, metaphors, or similes, or allegories they wish, but it makes us a more literary country. And what I mean by literary country is that people begin to have more nuanced stories about pain, about shame, about anger, about how emotions travel through the body, that we have a a more empathic, nuanced, well rounded and realistic narratives about how we are not these isolated egos, but we're in some ways like fish constantly floating in the currents of emotions that st- sometimes start with other people and pass through us. And that we're more like sponges, you know, and that emotions can get saturated within us. Then we got to squeeze them out and keep them flowing. And I think that it would allow for. The storytelling that we all inevitably do throughout the day with e- with each other to become more insightful and um, and I wouldn't say navel gazing. I think that's that's kind of pejorative, but I would say more inner aware. You know, and I think once people become more literate of their inner state, then they're less likely to subscribe to a social script and the social script is like maybe marriage maybe this marriage works for you but maybe it doesn't maybe maybe you're monogamous maybe you're poly um maybe you're okay with a blended family um maybe you really don't want to do that job you need to do this other job um uh you know maybe you're at a part of your life where you actually need to kind of go off on a journey by yourself or maybe you're in a part of your life where you need to be surrounded by family and children and just hearing the, hearing the voices. Like, but once you're emotionally literate, it becomes a kind of immunity to the social scripts that everyone says you have to to kind of follow. And those, you know, scripts are on everything from race to, you know, sexuality. I know those, you know, and I think it allows for people to be more honest about how kaleidoscope we are right? Because like people identify with each other all the time. But what you have is a language of us versus them, both from the left and the right. Now, I don't want to play the game of equivalence, but they both do speak generally in kind of a sports team, us versus them language. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I've noticed, especially now it's uh, race has taken on that kind of quality of us versus them. I'm sure it'll be and then sexuality. Uh, and then eventually it'll be class again. So it's like a rotating wheel of words and stories but the the reality is that people identify with each other all the time and identification is very messy and you know i remember there was a a friend of mine who was a, a blm queen you know we'd go out to all the protests and then afterwards we would you know hang out at her house and she would only watch brad pitt movies And i was like why are you watching brad pitt movies and she loved once upon a time in hollywood she's like brad pitt is god she's like he's my spirit animal and i was like what are you talking about she's like you know He's like, he, he's like my white spirit animal. And then I, I, I you know, was kind of looking around and there was this other brother, you know, very dark skin, very gay. And he goes, Katie Bush is his spirit animal. I was like, what? You know, and it's just like, because people like grow up in the culture and they identify with each other. It's the same thing of when I go out to the suburbs and this, you know, this is like Irish twink who identifies with LeBron and has everything. You know what I mean? And it's just, yeah you know what I mean? Like I'm saying, it's just messy. It's messy. And I think that, How psychedelics can change your storytelling is that when it forces you to disintegrate your ego and see who are all the people you have inside of you, you realize that these categories, which are like just, you're either us or them, that that's a lie. That's not, that's not how people really work.
1: Yeah. And I'm laughing because Brad Pitt's just funny and random, but I think it's good to cross identify and, you know, find yourself in all different types of people I mean, speaking of identification, do you consider yourself like a psychedelic writer? Do you think your books are a form of psychedelics for the reader? You've written several books. I wonder if that, what influenced those?
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of them have, almost all of them have been, um, been created in the absurd, the churn and soup of a psychedelic state so the first one was definitely very psychedelic i wasn't taking psychedelics but i think there's ways of entering that through poetic exercise and breath work and practice and uh the second the first book is the theater of war that's the poetry book the second one is the ground below zero and that's the reportage and it was written not on psychedelics but about many psychedelic experiences appear in there and so the language has to try to imitate and follow a psychedelic state and then this last one thirst again i think it was very very um not about like drugs in particular but it, there's a psychedelic sensibility in it um the way that well
1: there that, is a drug line of drug plot line in it
0: yeah yeah there, yeah you're right there is there is um you know she's taking pharmaceutical medicines to try the, the main character maz thinks that she is schizophrenic and she's hearing voices. And so she takes this pill. But then when she stops taking the pill, she has to then accept that the voices are not internal schizophrenic illusions or, you know, audio illusions, but that they're the voices of vampires. And then she's actually hearing vampires plot to promote a real estate mogul to become the president in order to start a nuclear war, because if they can start a nuclear war and eradicate humanity from the planet, then they they finally can stop being vampires and become real beings. They can take over the, the planet. And so there's a lot of kind of questioning the role of drugs in one's life. So Maz has to reassess and change her mind about these pills that she thought were going to make her normal and good and realizing that what's That for her, if she embraces her true powers, that it means she has to give up this idea of ever being normal. And so she's got to throw those pills away.
1: Were those pills an allegory for something? I mean, the book is very allegorical, but...
0: Yeah. I think they were an allegory for... Those pills were symbols of normalcy, of the hope for being normal, that a lot of us are infected with at a very early age, this, you know, desire. Yeah, this desire, like, I want to be normal. I want to, I want to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And um, and I think the archetypal plot that I've seen in great literature is that the protagonist has to, at some point, go through a rite of passage in which they abandon the, the dreams of their People They have to abandon normalcy and kind of go off into a very wild and sometimes supernatural realm, um, which is oftentimes metaphors or images of their own internal state or the state of the world and emerge on the other side, having known the truth, you know, and we see this all the time, you know, from something as old as Plato's allegory of the cave to like the matrix, you know, it's just a very common Mm -hmm. trope you
1: know. Alice in Wonderland.
0: Alice in Wonderland, you know.
1: Actually, you know, when I was reading your book, I thought about Radio Free Able Mouth by Philip K. Dick. Have you read it? No.
0: And I know Philip you Gotta K. read
1: it. There's a, yeah. some very similar and strange parallels between your book and that book, including <laughs> like the President Trump storyline. Really? So, okay. Can I, or can I can should say it? Ronald, what was his name? Ronald
0: Falk.
1: Ronald Falk. <laughs> <laughs> especially the Ronald Valk storyline so you'll have to check that out and also the character communicates with aliens which
0: well, what's the name of that yeah.
1: radio free Abe Lamuth by Philip K Dick it was one of her, his later novels it's not a super popular Philip K Dick book but I see some parallels I think you'll enjoy it
0: Oh, I can't wait. To, I love that. I like, Oh, thank you. What a gift. This is like, a, this is why I love talking to writers because it's like, we are like, Oh, you should check out this book. Well, oh, you check out that book.
1: I know. I'm like the, I have to resist giving people comps. I feel like sometimes I'm like the comp queen. Cause I'm just like, Oh, you need a comp for your book. Let me tell you all about it. But um, I, I was also interested in what you're saying about poetics and entering the writing like, entering, I guess, a flow state, you didn't use the word flow state, but you said, like, there's poetics and breath work, and is, so what, how is that involved in your writing process, these, like, non-psychedelic entheogens in your creative life?
0: Uh I so for a theater of war i i took the national security strategy report and i turned it into a kind of a surrealist manifesto now this was during the bush years and the, you know after 9/11 the iraq war and uh it was my way of scrambling like almost like taking refrigerator magnets and just kind of scrambling the security report and making it into a very kind of surreal text and that was very very fun and m- mostly using it using the, the device of what other word does this word rhyme with? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even if it's kind of a, a perverse alliteration, and then we're starting to replace those words. And then as I replaced those words, the meaning of the text became twisted like a bent coat hanger. It, it still was similar, but there was this, these odd flashes of weird epiphanies that were shining through the, through the text. And I almost felt I read a deeper truth of not just the Bush administration. I mean, that's, it's here and it's there, but more of the mindset of the kind of American military industrial complex and how Ooh. it how it views the world. On a on a like, what is this collective? Not consciousness, but it's collective unconscious. You know, what and is
1: their mindset?
0: A, um, a mindset of seeking purity in the world and almost using bombs like a dry board eraser, like erasing the people and the architecture and the history, and then being able to recreate itself in the empty places basically being able to build a mcdonald's in a bomb crater
1: mm.
0: you know like recreating itself um and kind of very ter- accurate yeah yeah creating a, a mcdonald's in a bombshell and a fetishized or high like nearly um sexual need for being counting like counting everything quantifying everything right so you know almost kind of going up to one of those like um a porn site but instead of people having sex on the video screen it's like numbers Hmm. you know and it's just like this kind of sexual attachment to like quantifying life quantifying emotions and making it everything into like a number or like a like do you
1: mean in terms of money like making it all into
0: money money but also coordinates for maps you know everything has to be quantified and so it's a very very perverse yeah and it prides itself it's it's a kind of it's like a general looking at him or herself in the mirror and turning to stone you know that's the vibe that i got from looking at that at that report is is that's their kind of mindset.
1: Like who is responsible for that and how do we fix it?
0: I don't know. Some, <laughs> someone did not raise those kids right. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But I've definitely seen, although when I worked for the government, I actually thought they weren't counting enough because I really felt like they had lost track of what taxpayer money was for and they were running programs they didn't know where the money was going I was being like yeah. grossly mismanaged it was really hard to watch so for me i felt like oh gosh like if only they would keep a little better track of the things that actually mattered or like the metrics
0: yeah i know what you that mean it actually
1: mattered but i see what you mean too the the it's um i love what you said in the other interview also about turning like mushrooms instead of mushroom clouds
0: Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it is. Like if you were in the '80s at all, that was like the last era of like Star Wars defense program, and you know the whole thing. And you're just like, Oof. you know, like, are we ever? Are we gonna get Although out now? Of-
1: don't don't we have a program literally called Star Wars now?
0: That's <laughs> the thing. Yeah, the we, yeah, be- yeah, Before it was like those satellites that were supposed to sh- shoot down the nuclear weapons as they were flying to us from the Soviet Union, and now you're right. Now, like, now. They actually literally ripped off the insignia from Star Trek. And they are like, all right, now we're going to have this whole new, you know, Star Wars. War. <laughs> I was like, okay.
1: Maybe we can get them all on trip weekend.
0: <laughs> uh, we, do, we need that. We need, I just, and that's always the joke in the psychedelic world. It's like, Jesus, can we just like, just dose people? You know, and always the elders are like, it doesn't work like that. And the kids are like, I'm tired.
1: <laughs> like, yeah. Just, I'm just like, what did Joe Biden see on his DMT trip? <laughs> <laughs> like, somebody give Kamala Harris some DMT, please.
0: I think if you give like va- Vladimir Putin some like acid, I swear to yeah. God, if he would be like in his dreams. He's dancing with a mushroom cloud, and he's like making love with like this like nuclear mushroom cloud. Who's wearing on a white horse? Clothes? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Maybe that should be your next book. <laughs> Uh, a russia allegory yeah i w- I want to ask you just like a little one a couple more questions okay, yeah. um because I do have a lot of writers that also read my newsletter and that follow my content um what how what is your approach to I know you said like for that particular project you worked with that report what is your approach to writing in general and do you have like a specific writing process or any advice yeah. for
0: writers? When I when I sit down I I start with whatever it is I'm the most scared to say. Hmm. Whatever I'm the most ashamed to say, whatever I'm the most scared to say and I, I that's the lead sentence. And it's kind of like, you know, gambler, like, you're okay, you're throwing, you're, you're putting the chips on this, on this turn of the wheel, spin of the wheel. But what I've found is that by confronting whatever I'm the most scared to say, which doesn't make it right, it doesn't even mean that it's going to make it into the last version, the final version that's published. But by doing that, at least I get rid of the kind of circling around, the endless circling around of the first draft. Oh, You know, which just takes up so much time. And as a parent, I don't have that much time. So I just say, you know, there's that. Uh, the second, uh, I generally have never really had writer's block. Um, and I think the one or two times I've had it in my like 20 years or so, what I did is that I actually described the block. And by describing it, I realized that there's this, like a release of energy because there's this good book called Writer's Block on creativity and it says whenever you're blocked it's not because you can't write it's because you're trying to write something that someone else thinks you should write but you're not really writing what you need to write and your unconscious is actually telling you like hey man stop this is not this is not who you are and this is not what who I am and this is this is not us you know this is some other thing you know you, I think you saw this on TV somewhere so I actually try to use any, like, it doesn't have to be as extreme as writer's block. It could just be procrastination, hesitancy, whatever, and use that as a guide saying, maybe I'm not writing what, I, what I'm what i really supposed to write. Um, the other thing is that sometimes as writers, we can get like loops in our heads, like almost like obs- obsessional kind of loops. And people are like, oh, those are getting in the way of me writing, you know, because I'm thinking about this. Well, then I'm thinking maybe you should write about that, mm-hmm. you know? Because what happens is is that I feel that, that writing is just an instrument to put into an artistic form whatever content. The content is pliable, and the form is pliable too, but the content can be whatever. You can put any content in the form of writing, and it'll change the writing. So maybe it'll be stream of consciousness. Maybe it'll be social realism. Maybe it will be a, a romantic love story. Maybe it will be tragedy or comedy, whatever genre. Usually the form will be in some ways influenced by the content, but you know, you can write about anything. And I think one of the things that gets in our ways as writers is that we assume that there's only one way to write about something. And so we're trying to cram in all these different life experiences into the kind of same Cinderella slipper and we can't walk that way. So the thing is that you can write about anything in any way. Um, so you can write about your obsessions and write about what it's like to have an obsession. And almost all the time, literally poof, all of a sudden that loop is gone because now it's it's on the page. So I try to have a good relationship with, with my unconscious and to <clears throat> use it to const- constantly like draw things up, bring them up, um, and also realize that that the the time that I'm in and the cultural moment that I'm writing in that almost always has cliches or dogmas or rhetoric or jargon that stands in the way of full, honest expression. And that one of the things one has to do is prepare yourself to push against that wall of jargon because you're going to get rewarded if you repeat what other people think but in a more beautiful way you'll get awards and if you do sometimes that's great you'll you can you can ride that wave but you also may feel that there are things that you need to say that go against the award system the what's being celebrated and you're still writing really well you're writing great stuff but it's going against the kind of morality of the time um And, and I think, and that to me, maybe because I teach literature, I can, I can look on my shelf and I can see books that people, and this is such the odd thing about literary canon. I can look at books right now on my shelf that if someone tried to publish today, they would not get published. Yeah.
1: Even from like six years ago,
0: I feel like. Like, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't know. If someone came around with a, a a a choreo poem like "For Colored Girls Have Considered Suicide" when the rainbow was enough, I don't know if that would be published today. I don't know if Native Son would be published today. Uh, I don't know if Moby Dick would be published today, or um, Ulysses by James Joyce. Um, I'll be honest, and this is a hard thing to say. I don't even know if Beloved would be published today, or th- they would be published. I'm sorry, I'm being too extreme. That's lazy. That they could be published, but they would not be rewarded. They would not be kind of put into the like sacred literary firmament Mm -hmm. that could happen today. Um, So some ways looking at the history of of literature, you're looking at the sediment and the way that people look at tree rings or um, the way that uh, an archaeologist will look at rock sediment and be able to tell what was happening in the atmosphere of the time based on the chemicals that are in that ring of rock. And you can look at the kind of ring circles of the tree of literature and realize like, oh, this is what the atmosphere was like when this was written. But it's changed now. And so it's still part of our tradition, but it's not a part that if it was published today, would ever see the light of day.
1: Do you think that, because I, for me personally, I go back and forth. I think that we need to be able to see that sediment and the tree rings. I don't like this business of like the Ronald Dahl thing. I'm like, no, I don't want Netflix to rewrite Ronald Dahl. But then I also feel conflicted because, for example, like taking down the Confederate monuments. Yeah. It's like, how much of the rings do we want to remain and how much will future generations just erase them or remove them or change them? So what are your,
0: but you know, what's interesting is that in the every act of literature, not every act, but the acts of literature that are part of the American literary canon are constantly being revised, not revised, I'm sorry, but reviewed, and seen in a new light under re-understood through literary criticism. Literary criticism is a living, constant conversation between writers in the present and writers in the past that will inform writers in the future. And so there's a, as you said, they're constantly re-understood. And I think the difference between that and, uh, you know, Confederate statues of Robert E. Lee or whoever in the middle of, of the town square or, you know, Columbus over here in the Columbus Square circle in, in New York on, uh, 59th street is that, that they're not really open to reinterpretation because they're not a book and it's, there's not a conversation. I mean, there is a conversation and the conversation is like, all right, we'll pull them down,
1: yeah. but
0: then they, there can be put into a museum and then people can say, look, um, this is what this used to be here. And we thought about it and then we moved it. And that's kind of what happens with books. Like this book was important, but we don't think it's as important as it used to be. And maybe we'll move it. And so, you know, to say that a a novel or a poem or a statue or a flag is so important that it could never be moved is and in some ways to have a necrophiliac relationship so that we, we love the past at the cost of the present.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny. I feel so comfortable with the monuments. But then as a writer, I'm like less comfortable with rewriting books. I'm like, no, leave the books as they are. Put them somewhere else if you want. Don't rewrite them and like change them. But I think that's my own ego attachment to to writing probably. But I'm wondering, like, what are you obsessed with right now? And what are you afraid to say right now? Hmm. or for your next book
0: yeah for the, i think i think well right now the next book is is going to be um it's it's almost like reversing um the plague plot line and Mm. i think what i'm probably what i'm the most scared to say or imagine is how who we are if we lived our most extreme joys or what does it look like if a kind of a radical like mass healing happens well, i'm just kind of curious what happens to people because the reason i'm almost scared to say that is that once you start imagining something you almost become responsible for it because you become a midwife to it and you have to to some degree bring it into the into the world um, right now I'm writing a, a series of of um, essays, a little bit like Roland Barb's The Lover's Discourse, but on the the history, the legacy of, of 9-11, but not in a political or militarily way, but in these kind of small, odd ways. Like when I was in jogging in, in Cambridge and I saw this old bodega in Cambridge, obviously it's been around for like many years, and it was called the New York Style Deli. And on the awning, which is rain streaked and kind of ragged and torn, there was the image of the Twin Towers. And it just struck me because in New York, you don't really see the Twin Towers on like our coffee cups and you don't see the Twin Towers in the subway um, posters of the city. You know, Uh, you see the Freedom Tower, which makes sense. Like it's the Freedom Tower has been up there for like, you know, more than 10 years now and time moves on. But it just struck me as like, oh, wow, that the towers not only are physically gone, but they're also being erased from history, from memory, from, from our media. And so they're also, it takes a long time for them to disappear, but on this one ragged New York style deli in Boston, there was an image that I hadn't seen in almost like five years. So just small moments like that, right? And I think the other one is the one, the, the kind of lightly fictionalized is some, is, a a kind of a novel on love during COVID Hmm. and the tension between meeting people and sometimes falling in love, sometimes just being intimate, sometimes just hooking up in the midst of a plague where we don't know if just by touching other people, we're spreading a virus that could kill someone who we don't even know like someone who knows someone who knows someone yeah. down the line of vulnerable immune deficiency old or just someone who sick gets it and dies and we we were part of the chain that passed them along we don't even know but at the same time we have this deep hunger to be with someone because we're anxious and we want to be held and we want to hold someone and Uh So there's this tension. And so what it was like falling in love during COVID. Actually, I'm not just falling in love, hooking up with people in the first part of COVID, and then falling in love towards the end of COVID. Um, And it was a very deep and important love. And then having this experience of, of new blossoming joy in the middle of a city in which a lot of people are dying. Mm. and it's just in how in some ways the death put this kind of pressure upon our new relationship the way that you know the earth puts a pressure on coal and makes it into a diamond like there's something about kissing someone for the first time when everyone's wearing a mask yeah that makes that kiss more important And and it makes that kiss more articulate you're saying more through that kiss, because every other the time... stakes are higher, yeah,
1: it makes me think of that um, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone where the, this couple is given a box. Have you seen this? and every time they every time they press the button inside the box, they get money, but also every time they press the buttons, a stranger dies. <laughs> oh. so it's a very, oh. black mirror, very black mirror thing of like oh we want we feel the joy and I feel like what you're describing is like that too like I'm feeling the sexual energy I want the sexual joy or the love but like someone also could die because I'm possibly transmitting this and I won't know that person and they're like we need this money and who knows it might be like a bad person that dies I don't know it's a crazy episode but <laughs> just yeah, how I many
0: times did they press the button
1: oh I can't remember right now I'd have to rewatch it but quite a few oh! Oh, 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 that's and then the twist I'll just I'll just spoil it for you because the twist at the end is great the twist at the end is they finally feel so guilty that they give the box to someone else and when this next person presses the button they die
0: oh I love that. <laughs> I can't wait to watch that episode now. I'm going to show that to my son. I was like, he'll be like, "What are you doing, Dad? Show me Avatar." Oh wow, that's so powerful That's great. Thank you for that. Thank you. There's, there's that's the far. second thing you gave me. A great Twilight Zone episode, and it gave me a good, a good book by uh, Philip K. Dick. So this, this is <laughs> been the gift that keeps giving.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I I don't want to take too much more of your time, but is there like what? Actually, I had one more question that I did put a pin in. Are you working with a nonprofit or any kind of organization in your work, or are you directly advocating to like the health department? Like, what is the what is yeah no what is that midwifing that you're doing looking like these days for your utopia? Um...
0: I, I work kind of, I guess the best way of saying it, I'm a freelance kind of psychedelic um, I wouldn't say promoter, just kind of a psychedelic Advocate. activist. Advocate, yeah. So I work, I give talks and presentations to, you know, it could be uh Cardia, which is a ketamine clinic. Um, it could be uh, you know, who else? I, I've given talks to Horizons, which is you know the kind of annual gathering. And right now. I am talking with people to see who is interested in creating some kind of organization, hopefully short-lived, that pushes the Department of Mental Health to really start taking this seriously and going up to the mayor's office and and saying, "Look, you know, uh, a lot of uh, this city could save a lot of money if some of the these mental illnesses were cured in a shorter mm-hmm. month." And, and maybe even some of the, the gang stuff could stop, not stop totally, but at least decrease dramatically if we can go to some of the section eight housing and offer conflict negotiation along with maybe a ketamine of trip and maybe a job. Like, in other words, like there's ways to kind of get to use this as one part of a larger interwoven support system to, to pop people out of their, you know, dug in like a tick, like pop them out of their toxic lives into something, that, you know, that's more transcendent. So, you know, right now I'm going to, I'm talking with people because I, I'm i good with ideas. I'm great talking with people. I can present stuff. I'm generally a decent human being behind the scenes, you know, treat people with respect, um, make sure people get paid, but I'm not really organized. I mean, like I'm organized enough to like, you know, my place is clean, but I'm not like I don't like looking at emails. I really don't like looking at like the whole bureaucratic stuff. And it's just, that's just not what I do. So I have to find ways to get folks to do that so that this way, maybe we can really put pressure. And it's just really for one goal. Because I think if New York becomes a city that does it, then other cities can follow like a domino. So right now I just give presentations. I would love to give presentations to social workers and be like, hey, this is it to administrators. I would love to give a presentation to Eric Adams. He's the mayor of New York, Mayor Adams. I'd be like, whoever, just be like, hey, folks, this is what science is. I'm a professor, but I was, I'm was, i a New Yorker. I've been here. Like, this is what the deal is. And hopefully they'll be like, all right, let's, let's consider this, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a big, overwhelming, like to me, it's a big goal. And I'm very impressed that you're taking it on. I feel like anytime you're dealing with the government, it's a... It can be like a hit or miss. Like sometimes you just nail the home run, meet the right person, talk to the right person at the party, and like boom, it's done. And other times, good luck. It like will just take forever and ever and ever, never and ever. And ever, and ever. Never. So I, I mean, I'm just thinking about what that would look like in my own community because I, d- I live in Fort Lauderdale. It's not as mm-hmm. big of a city as New York,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but there, I feel like it's a place of extreme inequality. The yeah. inequality here is maybe the worst I've seen of any place I've been in the United States. Like yeah. just extreme, extreme wealth and the yachts, the super yachts, the mega yep. yachts, mm-hmm. and then extreme poverty, especially in the Haitian community that lives here on the outskirts of the city.
0: Yeah, I, I, My aunt who passed away not too long ago and my grandma passed away many, many years ago. They used to live in Fort Lauderdale. And yes. I used to go there for the summers. And, and I remember they had, you know, the, the kind of like a one story, you know, ranch, I think, style bedroom house. And it was fine. And, but I, I could see the inequality. Then I could see the, the you know, the constant grinding poverty um, and the resentment that people had towards the poor.
1: And towards the rich. It's yeah. like, there's just, Everywhere. I feel like it's, there's, there's conflict and there's little quarters and people stick to their areas and there's not a lot of philanthropic work going on from what I can see. So I just think about what your idea would look like here, because I do think so many problems can be fixed by medication and medical care and treatment of yeah. mental illness, Um. And so I'm just like, I love this vision. I really hope that you can yeah. succeed with it and have it trickle down into other places. <laughs> I mean, if there's one way, if somebody watching us wanted to support you, what's the best way they could support you?
0: That's a good question. Um, I think, well, I mean, you can, it's probably easy to contact me at the school or like what you did at the email. I think if someone knows uh, people who are just very good at the kind of the nuts and bolts of an organization in terms of like, you know, what are the platforms that, so that everyone can meet? Um, you know, the scheduling, uh, keeping track of who we've talked to and what we've said and, you know, what's what's the next step? Um, you know, if we do ever get, um, you know, money from a venture capitalist or a philanthropist, you know, keeping track of the budget, making sure people get their payroll, like just like the nuts and bolts of it. I think that would be great. But more than that, um, which, cause that's a bit of a, I wouldn't say it's a tall ask, but it say like a a volunteer
1: volunteers, maybe at least
0: volunteers at first. And, and again, it's like, I'm not, I I don't need the the money. So it's not like, you know, I'm not like a hidden daddy warbucks, but I think, (laughs) you know, there's that, but I think, um, more than that, I think, people coming out of the psychedelic closet and letting others know if they've done psychedelics, just making it part of their conversation. Um, I remember dating someone who was poly and she just dropped it. She was polyamorous really casually in a conversation. And the fact that she said it casually, people accepted it, mostly accepted it casually. And I think it's the same thing with psychedelics or things that people think are counterculture. I think if you just say it casually and just let people know like, hey, psychedelics are part of my life and they've helped, I've had a weird bad trip, but I've also had lots of good trips, and just be realistic about it. You know, like you don't have to be a a car salesman for psychedelics today. You don't have to like sell a lemon like it's a Bugatti, but you can just say, you know. And I think everyone, if everyone does that, more and more people will begin to feel the conversation change.
1: Thanks. And what about what about your writing? How can people? What's the best way to?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, there's nickpowers.com, which I think is just uh, up and running. There is probably the easiest place to look at the writing is Truth Out or the Independent.org is I N D Y because we're independent from proper spelling, so I N D Y P E N D. Oh, that's where I
1: read the short stories on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Those are great.
0: And other than that, I would just say get thirst and and enjoy uh, enjoy vampires. <laughs> yeah get thirst.
1: get thirst put neon posted notes in it and <laughs> enjoy it was really good I really enjoyed it I thought I liked it I loved the illustrations too actually before we go what was that like I opened this book and I was like oh my gosh look at this yeah. artwork is
0: <laughs> yeah and the uh,
1: small press like are you affiliated what's the story there
0: oh so upset press is it's a press that's been around for about 15, 20 years in Brooklyn. And they, just looking, trying to get the credits here. Um, They have put out, you know, Born Palestinian, Born Black by, um, I forgot the sister's name, but she's, you know, a, a kind of this tall Palestinian Brooklyn lady who's been on Deaf Poetry Jam. Um, and, you know, they've published, I would say, Kind of um, experimental poetry, experimental prose poetry, and this is their first novel. So, thirst. Oh, wow. is, yeah, thirst is their first novel, and it breaks ground for them because it continues their political mission, but in a popular genre of vampire, kind of hard-boiled vampire noir, you know, and. I, I think at this point, the first the initial publishers and owners are now getting to a point where they want to kind of give the baton to another generation. Mm-hmm. So right now, Upset Press is going to go through a transition in the next year or two, and there will be a, a whole new kind of sensibility in it. So I was the first author that they published with Theater of War, and then Ground Below Zero, and then Thirst is probably my last book with Upset Press. Um, and it's not, you know, it's all good, it's all love, yeah. but it's more like the next book is going to be, I think, with North Atlantic Press. Um, and it'll be about psychedelics, so it's just kind of moving oh, on.
1: Cool. Yeah. Do you already have a title for that book?
0: Yeah, I think it's gonna be tripping on race.
1: Tripping on race. Ooh, I love it because like you uh, don't hear uh, enough about you don't hear enough about race, or you don't hear enough diverse voices in the psychedelic community to begin with. So yeah. I love that you're writing about that.
0: Yeah, no, it's already got it. it's already stars, and I wrote this before the this slap. Uh, Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock, and Kevin Hart. Literally, because they did interviews about like doing ayahuasca and psychedelics. So, like, yeah. was, like, I just totally put them together. And the next thing you know, like, I guess he was on ayahuasca. Will Smith's like, shit, Chris Rock, and people were like, what are you doing?
1: And so, uh, wait, they're all in the book.
0: Like in the first chapter of the book. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's I <know>. so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope it's a great success. When is that going to come out?
0: Uh, hopefully, some point next year. It's already got the first two chapters done. So, I just got to get that. Yeah, but I I should get ready to go pick up my stuff. My yeah, song.
1: awesome. Well, I thank you for sharing so much of your time and for doing all the amazing work that you do. And I'll put like, if you have other links you want to send me, I'll put them all in the description that goes out. And yeah, thank you so much.
0: Charlie, you're the best. Thank you so much. And, and blessings and love to your child. Thank you. Yeah.